Hello, hello, this is Cameron, and you are listening to Criminal Haunts. Today, we are going to be talking about the case of Sherry Rasmussen. Now, I'm not exactly sure how to say her last name. It could be Rasmussen, it could be Rasmussen. We're going to go with Rasmussen. It just makes more sense. Sherry was born to Nels and Loretta Rasmussen on February 7th, 1957 in Walla Walla, Washington, but she was raised in Tucson, Arizona. Sherry was said to be incredibly intelligent. She excelled in everything she did. and She was very hardworking and determined. She was so smart that she skipped a grade. And when she turned 16, she started Laurier College in September of 1973. Freshman year, she decided that she wanted to pursue nursing just like her sisters had. Um, she looked up to her sisters a lot and they were very close. So she applied for the nursing program at Loma Linda School of Nursing. In June of 1977, her and her sister Connie both graduated from Loma Linda at the same exact time. In 1978, Sherry went on to pursue her master's degree at UCLA and graduated in 1980 at just 23. She was officially credentialed as a cardiovascular clinical nurse specialist, and by her late 20s, she was the director of nursing at Glendale Adventist Medical Center, giving presentations and teaching classes for fellow nurses. Oh, pretty much. She's a badass bitch. She's got brains. She's got beauty. And so that is how she landed John. I couldn't find much on his childhood and how he grew up. But from 1978 to 1982, John was majoring mechanical engineering at UCLA. Um, he was a very handsome, outgoing guy who was an all-star athlete. So while they were in college, they met at a party that they both went to. Sherry was a beautiful woman. She was tall. She was slim. She was kind of shy, but in a mysterious way, you know, like the one you don't want to go up to, but you want to go up to just to see what she's all about, you know? John said that she stopped him in his tracks. And so when he went up to chat with her, fell in love at first sight. And those were his words. So then at the party, he later asked his friend to get her number for him. I'm not sure why he couldn't just ask for it himself, but you never know. Soon, Sherry fell in love too, and then they got engaged shortly after in the year 1985. So John is kind of unique. He didn't get her an engagement ring. He upgraded her old Toyota for something nicer and bought her a BMW. Then soon, John moved into Sherry's condo. So they had their wedding, they went on an amazing honeymoon in Jamaica, and then they came back and it was time to get back to reality, you know? John had just gotten a new job at a company called Micropolis, where his hours would be 8 a.m. to 5 p.m., which is before Sherry. Now we're going to get on to the nitty gritty and talk about the murder of Sherry. We'll give you a warning, I mean graphic descriptions, that's what true crime is. If you don't want to hear it, you're at the wrong place. On Monday, February 24th, 1986, Sherry and John both got up at 7 a.m. to get ready to go to work. Sherry had a motivational speak to present that day, but she didn't want to, so she made an excuse. You know, she wasn't feeling good, quote-unquote, and she called in. She didn't want to go. So John says, okay, I'll call you later, check up on you, see what's going on. John then left around 7.20 and went to drop off his dry cleaning and ended up at work at 7.50. Around 10 a.m., John called Sherry to check up and talk, but she didn't answer, so he tried to call half hour later and still no answer. Okay, no big deal. Maybe she went into work. So then he called her secretary at her job. 
secretary, she said she hadn't seen or heard from her, but she also said that that was normal because she didn't work in the clinic on Mondays and usually taught classes, or like today, she would have been giving her speech. So now, John is a little worried, but not thinking too much into it. Maybe she's just taking a nap or she's busy. I'll call her later. So later on, still no answer. So once John gets off, he runs his errands and he gets home around 6 p.m. I think it's important to tell you the layout of this condo just so it makes more sense and gives a little bit of clarity on how this went down. First things first, I just want to tell you guys that this case is little odd because this is a very secure condo. So what's nice about this condo is it's very, very secure. There are six foot walls around the whole complex and you had to have a key card to get in and out. It was quiet and everybody knew everyone, friendly neighbors. It's just a nice place to live, you know? So the layout went, you had a front door and then you went around the complex to the back where you'll find a driveway that goes into a garage. And then above the garage, you'll have a balcony that leads into the bedroom. And when you go in the door from the garage, it leads into the living room. So he gets home at six, he pulls into the back to get into the garage, and he notices that the garage is open, which is odd, because he knows that he shut it, but the neighbors that morning noticed that the garage door was open around 9.45 when they went to walk their dog like they did every morning. He then notices that Sherry's car is gone, and there's glass all over the driveway that came from the sliding doors on the balcony above. So of course John is super confused, a little bit sketched out, but of course who wouldn't be? So then he heads inside thinking Sherry just might have been out about doing some errands. Unfortunately, that was not the case. Um, soon as John walks into the house, he sees Sherry's lifeless body laying in the living room on their brown rug, still in her red bathrobe, with three gunshot wounds to the chest. So John frantically calls 911. He's asking neighbors for help. He's just in shock. When Detective Lyle Mayer reported to the scene, he noticed that one of the room's tall stereo speakers were knocked over and laying next to Sherry. The wires were removed from it, and then a gray ceramic vase was shattered on the floor at the base of the stairs leading up to the living room to the second floor. A VCR and a CD player had been stacked neatly, as if, you know, assembled to carry out, but then was left behind. There was a single bloody smudge on top of the CD player, and there were smears of blood on the east wall and, an and another smear on the front door. Now on the floor just inside the front door were two cords. One was apparently the wire from the fallen speaker. And then upstairs, one of the two glass sliding doors to the back balcony was shattered. Obviously, that was what was on the driveway that John had seen. But there was no sign of forced entry, and other than the objects left on the living room floor, there was no sign of robbery. Detective Mayer then discovered a quilted blanket on the living room chair, and it had a bullet hole in it with powder burns. After the first shot, a gun had been placed against her chest and fired point blank twice. It appeared that the killer had used the blanket to muffle the sound. So, two bullets were recovered from Sherry's body, both a thirty-eight caliber uh, one of the bullets must have passed completely through her because they couldn't find it, and any of these three shots alone would have been fatal. Somebody had wanted to make sure that she was dead. Then had wounds on her face, um, likely from being struck over her right eye with the vase, and there was also a bite mark on her inner left forearm. 
Detectives then swabbed for saliva and made a cast that could be taken for possible tooth comparison. When detectives went to interview neighbors, family members, and friends, two men who the neighbor believed were gardeners in the compound gave her and her husband a purse that they had found, which turned out to be Rasmussen's. And then a maid cleaning a nearby unit said she heard something that sounded like two people fighting and then something falling around 1230. As far as John's interview, he just told him about his day, retraced his steps, and the police never named a suspect. Then a week later, Sherry's car was found parked on a nearby street, unlocked. The keys were in the ignition, and they found several fingerprints in it, a spot of blood, and a strand of brown hair. Detective Merritt then told John that this was a burglary. Somebody had came in, not expecting Sherry, and they were surprised, resulting in shooting her. Oh, I don't know about you, but this doesn't sound like a burglary, first of all. They didn't take anything besides the car. Um, who just goes in, steals nothing, and shoots somebody point blank? Yeah, make that make sense. But apparently there were two Latin men that had been breaking into houses in the area over the last couple weeks. And in one case, they had assaulted a woman. And so in the investigation of Sherry Rasmussen, they did take a rape kit just in case. Obviously, after the investigation was done and wrapped up, John was a mess. Um, he went over to his parents' house and had asked his dad to call Nels, who is Sherry's father. So 1 a.m. comes around. Yeah, I said 1 a.m. That would be seven hours after John had gotten home and found Sherry. Why didn't he just call a couple hours later or right then and there? Don't you think her father and mother should know? But yeah, 1 a.m. Nels receives a call from John's father. Not even John himself? Mm, yeah, he was pissed, as he should be. See, the thing with Nels is he's very reputable and a professional man, and he wasn't very fond of John in the first place, but his daughter was happy, and he didn't want to intrude, you know? He is quoted as calling him unimpressive and weak. So later on during the investigation, Nels was showed sketches of the two Latin men that had been robbing everybody, I guess. He was shocked that they even thought that his daughter could fight off two men for that long. And if it were them, why they even fought in the first place? Why not just shoot her and then rob her? So then he mentioned to the detectives, quote, Have you checked that lady cop, the one working that day? Unquote. He knew that this cop was John's ex and was apparently a nutcase. So this nutcase was named Stephanie Lazarus. Now, this is where it's gonna get a little suspicious and a little bit sketchy, um, and I have my own opinion about this, and I will tell you at the end of the episode. So Stephanie Lazarus was a former UCLA student and was very, very fond of John. They dated back in college days, and Stephanie loved John. Lazarus would steal Rutan's clothes when he showered and take photographs of him in his underwear while he slept. I'm sorry, but what the fuck? John never considered the relationship as anything more than quote-unquote necking and fooling around. They had sex for the first time after he graduated. But you know how some men can be when they say, oh, you know, we were just friends, we were just friends with benefits, but there was probably more than what he was saying. 
So on John's 25th birthday, Stephanie threw him a surprise party unaware that he had been dating other women or that he had developed a serious relationship with Sherry Rasmussen. Stephanie felt sad and hopeless about their quote-unquote relationship. And this is a direct quote from her. I'm truly in love with John and the past year has really torn me up. She then wrote to John's mother in August of 1985 quote unquote, I wish it didn't end the way it did and I don't think I'll ever understand his decision. Then in her own journal she wrote, I really don't feel like working. I found out that John is getting married. So poor Lazarus visited Rutan at his condo and the two had sex, quote, to give her closure. Now let me remind you that John and Sherry had just gotten engaged. Just wait, there's more. Then, Stephanie brought her skis to Sherry and John's apartment and asked him to wax them. And despite Rasmussen's objections, he complied. <laughs> First off, no. You would never bring your ex into our house. He obviously felt that this is a little weird and because Stephanie was dressed in flattering workout clothes, so Sherry was thinking about it and once Stephanie left, she asked John if their relationship was truly over. Him and Stephanie's, obviously. And then John convinced her the two were just friends. A few days later, Lazarus returned to pick up the wax skis in uniform and armed after he left for work. Sherry became unnerved by these visits and pleaded with John. Tell Stephanie to stop coming by. I do not like her in my house. I do not like that you guys had a past. You know, pretty common sense things you would think. So John responded with, there's nothing to their relationship and that she should just ignore Stephanie. Huh? So you're telling me that he just said, oh, just ignore it. It's fine. There's nothing to it. Mm-hmm. So according to Nels, Sherry's father, Stephanie later visited Sherry at her office to tell her that things were not over between her and John. She then told Sherry, quote unquote, if I can't have John, no one else will, shortly before her death. Again, Sherry confided to her father her fear that Lazarus was stalking her on the street. But when detectives called and interviewed Lazarus, they couldn't count her as a suspect either. Hmm. Suspicious. So they locked everything up, forgot about it. And Lazarus continued working at LAPD, and she went on to earn medals in 1987. In 1993, went on to become a detective. She married and adopted her daughter with her husband and became a police academy instructor. Like, what? You're meaning to tell me that she got to live her life after taking someone else's and then be portrayed as a hero? Nah. Nah, bitch. So the excuse of gang wars and the crack epidemic, these cops were having trouble devoting time to this case, ignoring the family, and shutting them out. Nels never gave up. He was not going to stop until the truth came out and the murder got justice. So when DNA testing became more prominent in the 1990s, LAPD started a new unit and looked through all the cold cases that may have enough evidence to be put into DNA. And so obviously the family was hopeful that this was it, you know, 
there's a chance to put an end to all this pain. We've been waiting. It's been years. We're ready for justice. We're ready for it to be over. Nels told them, don't worry about funding. I will pay for the DNA testing. But they just told him to his face that, no, this is a burglary and there are no new leads. You need to move on with your life, pretty much. And the case went cold again for many, many, many years. Then eventually Detective Mayer retired and they hired a new detective for the cold case. So finally, in 2003, Sherry's case gets submitted to the crime lab after LAPD was given a $50 million budget. Now, here's my thoughts. If Nels was going to pay for this, why all of a sudden now that they have $50 million that they were going to do it? Why couldn't they just do it when Nels offered the money? But anyway... So then, Jennifer Francis, who is a criminologist and lab tech, starts analyzing all the evidence from the case. The blood in the fingernails obviously comes back as Sherry's, but when she goes to test the saliva from the bite mark that was on Sherry's arm, it was missing. Thankfully, after six hours of searching for crucial evidence, she found it hidden. Yeah, hidden in the back of the freezers. It had been sitting there for 18 years in the back hidden from plain sight. So when they tested, it comes back as a female, but they couldn't match anything in the criminal database. So she calls the detective and he tries to play it off as maybe it was a female burglar or a female that was there to help the burglar. By 2009, Los Angeles crime has really died down. So now detectives can start looking into cold cases to increase their clearance rates. The new detectives that were on this case were Van News. I think that's how you say it, um, Jim Nuttall and Pete Barbara. So they reviewed this file and found it interesting enough to be worth pursuing because the DNA test pointed to a female suspect and the burglary theory just wasn't working out and they started from the beginning. Pretty much many aspects of the crime were improbable for a break-in, especially one in daylight. It's very unlikely and then her jewelry box had not been touched. All those CDs and VCRs were still laying neatly on the stairs. But the theory was that they started upstairs and then fought their way downstairs, which would have made the CDs and VCR fall over. Detectives also found that there were two shots fired at Rasmussen upstairs in the bedroom, but they had missed and hit the glass window to the balcony behind her. And that's why there was shattered glass all over. So now it's more likely that somebody wanted to kill her, not for robbery. From the four bound volumes of the case files, they had come up with five potential female suspects. But during investigations, they soon eliminated all but one of the other women. The other was a former co-worker of Sherry's who had some disputes with her, but was eliminated by obviously DNA. So the only one left was Stephanie Lazarus. With this, they wanted to keep it guarded just because they don't want her to get tipped off and then hide evidence. Then the detectives looked into other aspects of Lazarus's life during the mid-1980s when this all happened. Um, most LAPD officers had preferred a 38 caliber as their backup or off-duty gun because they were required to purchase only weapons compatible with a Federal Plus P ammunition that had been used in the murder. Records show that Lazarus indeed owned a Smith & Wesson Model 49 38 caliber at the time, 
and reported it stolen to Santa Monica police, not her own department, 13 days after the murder. Since Santa Monica was near a pier, they just assumed that she had thrown the gun into the Pacific Ocean, and without the weapon, DNA would be the only definite way to connect the crime to Lazarus. And obviously, a well-known LAPD officer and well-trained would know how to hide evidence from a crime scene and not get caught. And this next thing is absolutely insane to me because all that Nell's Sherry's father had been telling the police over the years, none of it had been filed. None of it. So now detectives are pissed off and they're ready to get this over with and get justice for the family. So it's time to get the DNA from Stephanie um, and they decided that they wanted to do it very quietly and secretively so that they didn't trip her off and make her suspicious. So, a special operations team staked out Lazarus and her adopted daughter on a trip to Costco. And they had snacked at a table, they were having lunch, they were hanging out. And Lazarus had been drinking out of a straw in this cup. So detectives had taken the straw and the cup when Lazarus had left. Two days later, the lab confirmed that the mouth on that straw was the mouth that had bitten Sherry. Are you ready for this? 23 years ago. LAPD, before these detectives had come in, had absolutely botched this investigation and really fucked up. So when they brought her in for questioning, they wanted to do it in the Parker building, which you had to check weapons before entering the downstairs jail and because she's used to this building she wouldn't have any suspicion of what was going on so now i want to read you some quotes from her interrogation because this is absolutely insane and this girl is off the wall big bonkers so they had asked her about her and john and then when they asked about sherry they asked stephanie quote did you know her not really. I mean, I knew that he got married years ago. Okay, did you ever meet her? God, I don't know. Okay, did you know who she was or anything? Well, let me think. So she leaned back, looked off, closing her eyes. Quote, God, it's been a long time ago. I may have met her. Jeez. And then she raised her hands in exasperation. Quote, you know. So here we are, and she's saying that she doesn't even know who this girl is, and she may have met her. Now they're getting into the nitty-gritty questions, and this is, quote, When you heard about John's wife being killed, what was your reaction? I obviously called the family. I called some of his friends that I knew. Obviously, it's shocking to hear. Do you know what the circumstances were regarding her death? Um, geez. Let me think back. Um, geez. I don't know if it was a burglary or something. It's been so many years, I can faintly think that I may have seen a flyer. It may have had her picture on it. That's what I see. If somebody called me, I may not even know her last name. I may have. Maybe if you told me, I would remember it. Do you know her first name? Shelly? Sherry? Something. Like I said, it's been so many years. And as far as you can remember, do you remember ever talking to her? As I said earlier, I may have, you know, I may have talked to her. She then goes on to say that nothing sounds familiar and she doesn't remember anything. And she doesn't remember if she was at the hospital when she told Sherry that 
if she couldn't have him, nobody could. She doesn't remember ever going to their house. She doesn't remember ever really talking to her. She barely remembers her name. Hmm. And now we're going to get to the part where she absolutely screws herself and just tells on herself. So the detective says, The reason we are asking you is there was an incident at her work that occurred and they also told us that there was an incident at her house she then sarcastically and with a little bit of a grim smile says you know what that does not sound familiar at all again if someone says i was at her house and i had an incident with her that just doesn't sound was john there did john say this happened and other people were there i just don't recall it just doesn't sound familiar Detective goes and says, this was an incident where you showed up, you weren't supposed to show up, and things got heated. At his house? That just doesn't sound familiar, you know? It's not sounding familiar. Not at all. So it's not sounding familiar because you don't remember? You know what? I have to say, I don't remember because I don't remember. It doesn't sound familiar. Would you not remember something like that in your life? Well, I would think, but... I mean, the drama involved in, you know, the other woman type of thing... Did you ever fight with her? He asks. You would remember that, right? That would be pretty. And then she cuts him off and says, Yeah, I would think so. Like I said, honestly, it just doesn't sound familiar. I mean, what are they saying? So I fought with her? So I must have killed her? I mean, come on. That just sounds crazy to me. I just can't even believe it, she said. I mean, I'm shocked. I'm really shocked that someone would be saying that I did this. We had a fight, so I went and killed her? I mean, come on. This is crazy. This is absolutely insane. And then Detective Amarillo read her her Miranda rights. So then the trial began in early 2012. Prosecutors argued Lazarus's motive for the murder was jealousy over Sherry Rasmussen's relationship with John. In his opening argument, prosecutor Shannon Presby summed up the case as, quote, a bite, a bullet, a gun barrel, and a broken heart. That's the evidence that will prove to you that defendant Stephanie Lazarus murdered Sherry Rasmussen. And during John's testimony, he became emotional and cried, especially when he brought up Sherry and their relationship. He then said that it was a huge mistake that he had sex with Stephanie while he was engaged to his future wife. No shit, John. You really think? In cross-examination, the police detectives and other technicians who had originally investigated the killing um, they stressed that the original burglary theory and pointed to evidence such as the similar burglary that had happened shortly thereafter that he claimed supported it. So the two men that had been burglarizing everybody, they brought that into the case. He also highlighted evidence that was not analyzed, such as bloody fingerprints on one of the walls, and suggested that other suspects had not been adequately excluded from consideration. The defense really went against the whole love-lorn or love-lost, like, theory. And so he presented friends of hers who denied that she was showing any signs of violence or despondence over her failed relationship with John. And then they brought up her notebook or journal, as you would say. Um, and apparently Lazarus had wrote in it of several different men. None of them would be John. So then... He reinforced his attack on the forensic evidence, calling his last witness a fingerprint expert, who said that some of the prints of the crime scene did not match those of Stephanie. Then came the end of the trial, where they both reiterated their themes and closing arguments. And after showing the jury of eight women and four men photographs of a beaten, 
bloodied Rasmussen, prosecutor Paul Nunez told them it wasn't a fair fight. This was prey caught in a cage with a predator. And the defense dismissed the entire case as circumstantial fluff and fill, save for this compromised bite mark DNA sample. He moved for a mistrial after Nunez reminded the jurors that no alibi had been proved for the time of the murder, since defendants' refusal to testify cannot be held against them. But Perry denied it, saying he did not take that as directly suggesting that she herself had refused to testify, and thus her Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination had not been violated. So, in March, after several days of deliberation, Lazarus, then 52 years old, was convicted of first-degree murder. Later that month, she was sentenced to 25 years to life in prison, and she's currently serving her sentence at the California Institution for Women in Corona. So, Stephanie later had a parole hearing in November of 2023, but she was denied and they did not hear her case because she tried to argue that the DNA was stored properly and could have been tainted and that her interview was unconstitutional pretty much and that she was directed to say what she said but they in turn again they declined to hear her case and she was sentenced to life and she's been in there ever since and that is the case of sherry rasmussen and her brutal brutal murder by this nutcase named stephanie lazarus and now I'm going to get into some of my opinion on the case because this is how I feel. First of all, John is very suspicious to me, but this is my personal opinion and I can't say that there's anything to say that he is a part of this, but I have a feeling that he is only because one, they were having an affair behind her back. Two, this condo was secured. There was no way that she could get in without a key card and a burglar wouldn't know that she was home how did she know that sherry was home so the only person that knew that sherry was home was her co-workers and john and i really don't think that her co-workers would tell this girl who they knew they didn't have a good relationship they really didn't like each other that Oh, yeah, she stayed home today. No. She had to get her information from John. Allegedly. That's what I'm saying. There's a little bit of suspicion in him. And that's just how I feel. Because after her death also, they met up in Hawaii. And then that was it. So what the hell happened in Hawaii? But John remarried and Lazarus is in prison. So what can we do, you know? But... Yeah, that is the story of Sherry. And if you guys have any recommendations, you can email me at criminalhaunts1 at gmail.com. And thank you for listening. Next episode is going to be a paranormal episode. And if you have any recommendations for that, go ahead and email me too. But if you can leave me a comment and review, that would be very helpful. Give five stars if you liked it, but be honest. Thank you for listening, guys. I appreciate you so much.